We're starting a new series here. I, I, I love this. This would be typically the time when a church would do what they call a vision Sunday. Like this is what we want to see for the entire rest of the year in 2018. And there is nothing wrong with that at all because we've done that here at New Heights before. Uh, but this isn't your typical vision Sunday. This isn't your typical vision series um, but it kind of sort of is. And you'll kind of see as we walk through the next three weeks and talk about some of the things that we're going to talk about, that I would hope this would be our vision, not just simply as a church, but it would be our vision as Christians, as we talk about some very important things like scripture reading and prayer and fasting and Christ-centered community. And I know what's going to happen as we start talking about this today and we go through the next few weeks and you're going to say to yourself, well, pfft, I mean, that's very preachery of you, Ryan, right? Like, yeah, what preacher is not going to talk about reading God's word and, and praying to God and being a part of a Christ-centered community? Those are all things that we talk about all the time in the church. But what I want to talk about is that we would not simply pay lip service to those things and talk about those things, but those things would become habits in our life, just like anything else would. Let me start by saying it this way. And let me, let me rattle off some things to you. How about this? Snacking nonstop, even when you are not hungry. How about, how about spending too much time on the couch watching TV? What about overspending your way into debt, eating too much fast food? I just heard someone this morning tell me, you know what, I've been eating too much fast food. Getting sunburned a few times every summer and skipping breakfast. Do any of these habits sound familiar to you. That's all right. You don't, you don't have to confess if you don't want to this morning, but if, inside yourself, if you just want to put that, that inner hand up and say, yeah, that's me, totally. They are among a group of the top 10 bad habits as compiled by the Reader's Digest. And while any of them, you can take any one of those that I just named, they can sound innocent enough when you take any of them to their worst extreme, they have negative and potentially catastrophic consequences that are associated with them. For example, something seemingly as harmless as skipping breakfast. How many, I, I'm, I'm interested in this. How many of you in here are not breakfast eaters? Raise your hand. Awesome. Well, so what I'm about to tell you hopefully convicts you because I used to be that guy. I grew up I was like, oh, I don't care about breakfast, whatever, you don't need this. Skipping the first meal of the day and you've probably heard this before, you're like, you're not telling me anything I don't know, can have serious consequences for your weight, your energy levels, and even your blood sugar. Munching on a piece of morning toast or crunching a bowl of bran flakes, I don't know who does that unless it has raisins in it, signals to your metabolism that it's time to kick things up a notch. Skipping the fuel keeps your metabolism running on low, which can lead to weight gain and sluggishness. You'll also create a starve now, indulge later eating pattern, which is why breakfast skippers tend to overeat later in the day. Does any of this sound familiar to anybody? And we would say to ourselves, I don't know why I don't have any energy. I don't know why I'm gaining all this weight, even though I said at the beginning of the year I wouldn't gain any weight. That may be the reason why. If none of those examples that I've mentioned so far tickle your fancy, doesn't sound like a bad habit to you, something that you don't struggle with, consider some of the more well-known options. Swearing. Nobody in here raise their hand right now, please, because that would be very embarrassing to you if that's your habit. Picking your nose is a nasty habit. How about this? Biting your fingernails. And if you struggle with the previous bad habit, and you also bite your fingernails, you're in really a bad position, guys. You gotta get that figured out. 
I love, I just wanted to say this word this morning. Trichotillomania. Does anybody know what trichotillomania is? Pulling your hair. Or it's close cousin twirling your hair. Actually, you would think nobody really struggles that, right? Like, actually, a significant part of the population struggles with trichotillomania. I mean, how, how in the world do you think this happened to me, guys? It doesn't just, I mean, the pain is real, folks. And on and on the list goes when it comes to bad habits in all of our lives. Social media, media, eating too much sugar, drinking too much soda, talking with your mouth full, cracking your knuckles, which will not make your knuckles bigger. I have found that out because I've cracked my knuckles my entire life and they are the same size. Eating too fast, not chewing your food all the way, and not brushing your teeth. And if you struggle with that last one, please do not share it with me after the service. I don't want any part of that either. <laughs> Guys, defined a habit good or bad, is a routine or a behavior that is repeated regularly. And I love this last part of the definition. And it tends to occur subconsciously. We do things in our lives. We have habits in our life that we do without even thinking about them. That's what truly a habit is. And you know the old saying, don't you? Old habits what? Die hard. Bad habits die hard while new ones are hard to form. In fact, studies have shown the average time that it takes to form a habit, good or bad, is about seven to eight weeks. And therein lies the problem, guys. If it's a healthy habit, if it's a good habit that we are trying to instill in our life, we often lose interest way before we ever have the habit form in our lives. But for every bad habit that we could have in our lives, there is a good or a healthy one that we would do well to strive for. But I'm convinced, and this is why we're here this morning, and this is what I'm going to talk about, the best habits or the best routines that we could have in our lives are those habits that help us draw closer to God. To know God more, to continually change us into the person that God desires for us to be. We call these things spiritual habits. Thus, the series, Spiritual Habits, as we'll talk about over the next three weeks. And these routines, these practices are the very things that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks as we seek to get a handle on exactly what the foundation elements of the faith are, the, the most helpful things to us, the catalysts for our faith to help our faith go from here to over here. Because I, let me just say this right off the bat. If you want to be a very different person at the end of 2018 than you are at the beginning of 2018, and you don't do a single thing that we talk about over the next three weeks, I can almost guarantee you that you're going to be the very same person at the end of 2018 that you are at the beginning of 2018. And that's not because I'm up here saying this, because I have some magical power that'll tell you that, because there is power in every single thing that we're going to talk about over the next three weeks. And these things that we're going to talk about are not easy. These things that we will talk about are not popular. They're not simple to implement. They are without a doubt, like I said, the key catalyst that will take our faith from here to over there. In late 1382, a, a man by the name of John Wycliffe took up one of the most rebellious acts that the church world has ever seen. A hundred plus years before Martin Luther ever nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, Wycliffe took up the task of translating the simple, the true, the earth-shattering words of Scripture into the common language. You see, up until that point, it was the practice of the church. It was the sole authority of the church that they held on to the Word of God. The Pope held on to the Word of God, and only he, only the church, 
decided when and how they were going to distribute that word to the masses in a way that they saw fit. And for Wycliffe and for his followers, that simply was not good enough. So he undertook the task near the end of his life to feverishly and painstakingly translate the Bible into words that would be even accessible to a common peasant on the street. And you guys would sit there and think to yourself, well, this is kind of silly. That's not really earth-shattering. At the time, it was earth-shattering for a guy to do that. It, it was not even just earth-shattering. It was, it, it was against church rules for someone to do that. You were condemned for doing something like this. Wycliffe himself had rediscovered the word that the church had long since forgotten, and he simply sought to share the wonder and the power of that word with the masses. And what's very interesting about 1382 is that that situation that Wycliffe found himself in was not all that different from the one that Israel experienced in its history. If you know anything about Old Testament history, you know that the Israelites were not very good about following God's word. And number two, and most embarrassing, they weren't very good about even knowing where God's word was. There were periods in Israel's history where they literally lost the word. I, I, again, that's, that's nuts to us because most of us, the average says that in our houses, we have an average of four Bibles. There were periods of Israel's history where they had nothing. They had nothing of God's word. They had no law to go by. And that's why they found themselves in the positions that they were in. And in 2 Kings chapter 22, they were in a period of time where they had lost God's law for about 50 to 60 years. I mean, even if you're a person who doesn't normally and necessarily read their Bible all the time, could you imagine not having your Bible for five years, 10 years, 20 years? And they, did, they were without God's law and God's word for 50 to 60 years. They had forgotten all about the law, and better yet, they had just flat out lost the law. Until it was rediscovered during the reign of a man, and not just a man, but a boy, eight-year-old boy called King Josiah came to the throne. And here's what we're told in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 about what happens. And I want you to listen, as I, as I read these words, the reactions to finding and hearing the law here in 2 Kings 22. Starting in verse 8. It says that Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. I love those words. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan went to the king, King Josiah, and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors of the temple. And oh, by the way, while we were doing that and collecting that stuff, we happened to find a scroll. And so it says, Shaphan read it to the king. And when the king heard what was written in the book of the law, listen to this. He tore his clothes in despair. And similarly, at a very low point in Israel's history, as they are just returning from exile in Babylon, in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, we find some very similar things going on there. In verse 1 of Nehemiah 8, it simply tells us this. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their own towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. And then if you, we skip down to verse 9, it says this. Again, listen to the reaction of what happens when they begin to read this book of the law. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For, 
check this out. The people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They had been weeping. They had been mourning as they listened to God's word. And I, I look at these two situations, and particularly the one in Nehemiah 8, and I ask myself, what in the world would cause someone to weep at the reading of God's word? To which some smart aleck in the audience would be like, Ryan, have you read Leviticus and Numbers? That would cause a person to weep. But, but here's my thought in all seriousness, guys. And it has everything to do with the motive and the posture that we approach Scripture with. I think there are two ways, two motives, two approaches that we usually take when we come to read God's Word. When we come to read Scripture, there is a usual motive and there is a correct motive. Most of us often come to Scripture for things like comfort or we come for guidance or we come for assurance or we come for what I call an identity check. We come to the Scriptures because we want to know, who am I? What does God say I am? Who does God say that I am? And here's the deal. I want to be very clear about this. While all those pursuits are not altogether bad motives, they're simply just not correct or very pure motives for reading God's Word. And before some of you say, well, gee, isn't that a guy up there very, very arrogant right now? Let me explain. I think a better way to approach God's word, a correct motive, a right motive to approach the scriptures is with the understanding that the scriptures, and catch this, I want you to hear this. And I I say this so many different times and in different ways, but the scriptures are primarily, They're primarily concerned first and foremost with answering this question, not who am I, but the question, who is God? That's what the scriptures are for as we dive into them. And and here's the really ironic thing about that. We would come to scriptures and say, God, tell me about me. Tell me how I do this. Guide me in this. Assure me in this. When we come to the scriptures with the mindset that I'm searching out and seeking out who God is, they automatically tell us who we are. Guys, any time that we spend reading and studying and searching the scripture should leave us with a greater understanding of the nature and the character of God. When we see God for who he is, merciful and righteous and forgiving and just, we properly see ourselves for who we are. And in a sense, I think what happens when we come to read scripture, it's not just us reading a book or reading words that are very ancient. It's, it's really kind of a comparison game. We see ourselves in the light of who God is and has always been. And we also see who we aren't. And I think that any takeaway or any insight that we, insight that we gather from scripture that does not take into consideration what we are learning about the God of the Bible, who he is, who he reveals himself to be, is really of limited benefit and significance both now and eternally. And and some really silly stuff happens sometimes when we come to Scripture, we read it. And usually what happens, this is a total aside here, I didn't really mean to do this, but I want to kind of just step away for a minute and talk about this. Most of the time we come and we read Scripture, what is the number one question that we ask ourselves? What does this mean to me? Do you know what? That's actually the last question that you should really ask yourselves about scripture. You should first understand what and comprehend what scripture is saying and read it over and over again and getting into you. Then you have to understand how to interpret it. 
What is the author really trying to say here? What is the author trying to say to the people that he wrote it to? And what might he, at the last part, what might he be saying to me and how might I apply what he is saying to me? But we don't often do that. We take away some really silly things from Scripture sometimes, and I'm really convinced that those are not very beneficial to us. We know that they're not beneficial to us. And so to recap, why do we often read the Bible? We read it to answer why, to gain all kinds of answers to all of our questions, or we often come to Scripture for help. And again, those aren't bad motives. They're just not correct motives. Why should we read the Bible? I want to burn this into your brain. We read the Bible to understand who God is, and and then in understanding who God is, how that informs the way that we should live our lives. That's the order, that's the proper structure of reading Scripture, which leads us to our main text this morning. If you have your Bible with you, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll be up here on the front screen. It's also in your bulletins, or you can find it on the app. 2 Timothy 3 is a very familiar piece of Scripture, and it has all the power in the world about the power of God's Word. Starting in verse 14, Paul tells his protege, Timothy, but you, Timothy. And those are very important words that he uses there, but you. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute, why he starts his charge to Timothy in this way. You, Timothy, certainly know what I teach, and you know how I live, Paul. And what my purpose in life is, you know my faith and my patience, my love and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all how I was persecuted in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me in all of that. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people, and this is where he starts to ramp up here and where we're going. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive themselves and will themselves be deceived. And then in verse 14... Here's what he says, but you, again he says it, but you, you must remain faithful to the things that you have been taught. You know that they are true for you know that you can trust those who taught you. You've learned these things. He, he talks a lot in his other letters about uh, Timothy's mother and Timothy, Timothy's grandmother, Lois and Eunice, about how they taught him. Paul has taught Timothy. He says, you've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, every last bit of what you hold in your hands, if you're holding a Bible in your hands today, is inspired by God. It is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it, all of Scripture, to prepare us and to equip his people to do every good work. If you have spent any amount of time in church, and especially if you grew up in church, every one of us knows a song about the wise man, and the foolish man, don't we? How many of you have heard that song before? I sing it in children's church all the time when I grew up, that the wise man built his house upon the rock, but the foolish man, he built his house upon the sand. Do you ever, like, as a kid, you don't do this. You're like, this is a really fun song. Let's just keep on singing that, right? But if you go into Scripture, in fact, in Matthew chapter 7, let me turn there real quick and read the fuller version of where that song comes from. And, and do you notice and do you ever pay attention what the song is actually singing about? 
Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Anyone who listens to my what? Teaching. Let's put it a different way. Anyone who listens to my word, to the scriptures, and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rains came down and the floods came. It doesn't really say that right there in my version, but that's the song again. Rains come down in torrents and the floodwaters rise. The winds beat against the house. It will not collapse because it is built on bedrock. It's built on the foundation of scripture, of God's word. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. And the house on the sand went splat. And the rains and the floods came and the winds beat against that house. It will collapse with a mighty crash. Now check this out. We, we sing this song. We're like, oh, this is really cutesy. We love this song so much. Let's sing it some more. No, we're not going to. I, I want you to check out the last verse that he has here. That we often don't, we don't sing this, or the last two verses we don't sing in the song. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? They were amazed for he taught with real authority. Quite unlike their teachers of the religious law. The people were amazed for Jesus taught with real authority. Authority. Guys, if there is one thing that the Bible tries to hammer home, it's that God is in charge. God is in authority. And that bears itself out in the 66 books of the Bible, in his word, the scriptures that he gives us. The story that is told from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is about a God and his nature and his character and him revealing it to us, which to me is just absolutely humbling that their creator of all things would look at his created and say, I'm going to reveal myself to you and show myself to you, my nature and my character. And in view of what we hear in God's word in the scriptures, it should change us. It should inform how we live every bit of our lives, not just a little bit of our lives, every single step of our lives should be informed by God's word and the authority that's in God's word. As we read, as we study, as we seek, and as we love scripture, we do it only because we love God. And we sense that the Bible is God's word to us. As Pastor Matt Chandler says, and this is so very important because we could, we could really easily just kind of go into this. We just, we love this book. We love these words. And then what we begin to do is we just begin to worship this right here. We don't love the Bible, is what Matt Chandler says. We love the God of the Bible. But guys, here's the thing. For us to love God more, we have to interact with his words more, which is found perfectly, authoritatively, and clearly in Scripture, right here in front of us. In fact, this is mind-boggling to me. 3,000, over 3,000 times in the Bible, the phrase, the Lord says, is used. That's, that's amazing to me. When something is used at that frequency in a book, and especially as it's used in the Bible, we better sit up and take notice that the Lord says. 46 times, with 33 of those being in the New Testament, we are told that it is written, which is actually the New Testament writer's way of pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, these are the words of God. Listen closely. 
The Bible is a cohesive, and it is very clear that it is the authoritative word of God through and through. From the beginning of the cover to the back of the cover, it is one story about God. And this is what is really fascinating to me. If you really know about the Bible and you really just take a step back and you would look at who in the world wrote this book? Who in the world wrote that book? Who in the world wrote all 66 books? Some people wrote several of the books in the Bible, but here's, here's the collection of the people that we get writing the Bible. Peasants, kings, shepherds, prophets, and more. All kinds of different and diverse people write and are the authors of the 66 books that we find in the Bible. And yet, as we read the Bible, there is a remarkable unity to Scripture. Because here's the deal, they aren't simply the words of men, but they are the words of God. A story that God is telling from front to back. God wants to tell a story and he does that through his word that is written over thousands of years. And in fact, if we look back here in 2 Timothy 3, he says in verse 16 that the words are inspired by God. In other versions of the Bible, it would say that those words are God-breathed. The word is actually a Greek word. I just love to say this. You don't even know this. It's not going to be on a test later. The word is theopneustos, which literally means breathed out by God. In the exact same way that God spoke the universe into existence, he also breathed out his word in scripture. Actually, a better word or a better idea, we often talk about the word of God being inspired. The word of God is actually expired. It's actually breathed out. And not just some of the scripture, not just parts of scripture, not just most of scripture. What does it say here in verse 16? That what? All scripture is breathed out by God. Do you want to take a guess at what the Greek word that is used there? For all, what it means? Anybody? You don't have to be a Greek scholar because all it means is all of Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. And here's what I think that means as I read it and as I dig into this, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that is inspired by God. It means that we cannot simply just pick out the parts of the Bible that we really, really love. And let's be honest, every single one of us in here have fallen into that trap, haven't we? Well, I really love that right there. I mean, it says right here that God is loving. But if I were to turn back right over here, it also said that God is full of wrath and that he is just and that he is judge. I don't know if I really like that so much, so that's coming out of my Bible. And I'm going to go right back to here. If all of Scripture is breathed out by God, is inspired by God, we can't simply pick out the parts that we like, what we want to obey and what we don't want to obey, what we want to believe and what we don't want to believe, and we just toss the rest of it on the scrap heap. All of it, every single bit of it is from God, and therefore it is perfect and it is good. Guys, Scripture is our primary point of reference. It's where we get our bearings for everything in life. And, and let, me, let me say this, because sometimes people would say, right here, this is it. This is, you can find good wisdom and good counsel outside of Scripture. People can tell you really good things, but this right here is the source of all truth. It's where truth comes from. Every single shred of truth that you would hear from someone comes from God's Word, or it should come from God's Word, and we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. If it's not, run away. Run away from it. 
And if it's our place where we get our bearing, it's this place where we find our truth, we need to be able to distinguish between good stuff and then we need to compare that and put it next to God stuff. Because even the good stuff in life, if it's not God stuff, isn't really all that good. Whatever, how do we know that though? How do we know that? How do we know what's just good stuff and how do we know what's God stuff? Whatever doesn't lead us to God, whatever doesn't show off God and his character and nature is not God's stuff. But whatever does lead us to God is exactly where we should go with the scriptures and in our life. And, and here's where I want to kind of just step back for a moment and I want to talk about the context of what's happening, not only here in 2 Timothy 3, but what's happening culturally in Paul and Timothy's day. And I don't want this to be a long discussion because I don't have the time to do this. But there was something in Paul and Timothy's day that was called Gnosticism. And very simply, this may boil all this down to say that Gnosticism was a version of religion that said, you know what, this right here, it's all fine and okay and dandy and wonderful and stuff, but do you know where knowledge is really found? Right here, in me. And in fact, it was even more exclusive that there were only certain special people that had what they called the light or the gnosis inside of them that they would be able to know what God was revealing to them. So they, this was really good. It was a good starter point, but it really only came from within, knowledge that was secretly given to people and so you begin to see, knowing that and what's going on, that there's some sort of false teaching that's happening in the church, and that's why Paul writes to Timothy. And if we would back it up even before verse 10, and we go to the very beginning of, verse, of chapter 3, my heading in my Bible says, the danger of the last days. It said that you, know, you should know this, Timothy. Then the last days, they will be very difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud. They will scoff at God. They will be disobedient to their parents. They'll be ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. And on and on he goes. And he talks specifically actually about a couple of people. And he actually talks about some people over here in chapter 2 at the end of it who are in the church and they are spreading some nasty stuff in the church. Some stuff that sounds almost kind of Christian, that almost sounds of God. It sounds like good stuff, but it's not God's stuff. And he says, this is what you have to do, Timothy. You, and that's why he starts here in verse 10. And then specifically in verse 14, he says, you, Timothy, you have to be faithful. You, Timothy, know because I have taught you, Timothy. I have taught you the word. Your, your mom and your grandma have taught you the word. You know. You have to be faithful to this or things are going to go very bad. And if the Bible is God's word, and that's certainly the case that's being made here this morning, here is what happens if we believe that God's word is authoritative and it is real. Again, as Matt Chandler says, the Bible becomes authoritative. It commands us what to do on your life and in my life in regards to who God is and what he expects of us when it comes to our obedience towards him. Guys, do you see why it matters if we read and study scripture or not? Again, I could just be another guy that comes here and be like, just read your Bible and walk off the stage. That's not a very good message. Just read your Bible. Because guess what? I will step off the stage and probably 90% of you will not read your Bible because that's not a very convincing sales pitch. This is why it matters that we read and we study and we know our scripture. Because in the words of God, we find life. We find our place. And most importantly, we find God. 
and the things of God. And here's what we do. We don't read the Bible just so we can follow rules. We read the Bible to follow him. The hope of forming the habit of scripture reading is that you would look to your Bible and that you would see a God that is lovely, even in the face of your unloveliness. The hope is that you would begin to understand him more fully and that you would love his word more deeply, not because you just feel guilty and, you know what, Ryan said, I have to read the Bible. But that you would read and you would seek and you would study in order to know a God who has saved you and calls you to him. The ultimate purpose, guys, of everything that I've said to this point this morning and preached and taught is that you would come to know God's word and you would say, I want to know I want to know him. I don't want to, just want to hear about him. I just want to casually read about him. I want to know him. And this, this right here, this is where I go if I want to know him best. My hope is that's what drives you to the scriptures. Not a sense of compulsion, not a sense of guilt, not a sense of anyone telling you to read the scriptures, but you do it because you want to know him. I want you to think for just a moment with me this morning. I want you to think about a moment or a time in your life when you had a real deal teaching moment in your life. A moment when you matured or you grew in your understanding. A moment where you were challenged and you were stretched and you were changed and then you grew from that. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it could be. And regardless of what the moment was, wherever you had a maturing moment in your life or if you had a teaching moment in your life, in that instant, you realize that you may not know everything. That is the most maturing moment that you could ever have in life. Not only that you don't know everything, that, oh, gee, possibly, I may have really messed things up. And essentially, the way that maturity happens in our life is that we come into contact, we collide with someone, or we collide with something that takes us from where we are in life and pushes us to what is next in life. That's all life is, is a constant set of maturing moments that we sit in this moment here until somebody or something pushes us to this moment. And then something and something comes to us in this moment and pushes us to the next moment until we become better and wiser and greater in God. And here is exactly what God's word does. It matures us. It pushes us. It stretches us. How in the world does God rub on us or how does he press on us? How does he chisel away at us and how does he engage us? Here is the big picture of all of this. How in the world do we become more mature? We only become more mature through engaging in spiritual habits. Primarily through his word and studying and seeking and living in his word. And here in 2 Timothy 3, particularly in verse 16, is where the focus of like everything is. I think that we're giving four very distinct and very clear ways of how scripture changes us and how scripture transforms us. And I just want to walk very quickly and very closely on these four things. The first place that scripture really begins to engage us and impress on us and rub up against us is, is what he says here in verse 16, that scripture teaches us. He says it right at the beginning. Scripture is inspired by God and it is useful to teach us. To teach us what is true is what it says in other versions. They reveal to us what is actually true about the nature and character of God, but also what is true about ourselves. That's the greatest thing that Scripture could ever do, is that Scripture could take and show you God and then shine a light on who you really are. Because we all have an idea of who we are, but we don't truly know who we are until we come into the presence of God. 
and his word. And here's what I believe, and I believe this to be even true in my own life. Most people don't want to do the work to find out what God says about life and how life works. And so what we often do in life is that we read like a few verses and then we just kind of guess. I mean, we guess at what it says. We guess at what it might mean. We guess at what's going on in the scripture. And we say things that are oftentimes outside the boundaries of scripture. We say things that are outside of God's intent, and that's where we begin to see inventions, and that's where we begin to see myths. That's where we begin to see outright false teaching, what's happening here in 2 Timothy 2 and 3 and 4 and in Paul and Timothy's day. When the whole time, guys, if we would just go to the Word and we would just study the Word and we would dive deep into the Word, it's there. God will lead us and God will teach us what we need to know. Not only does God's word teach us, but it has the power and the potential. The next thing it tells us is to rebuke us. Or it says here that scripture is inspired, it's useful to teach, and it, is, it makes us realize what's wrong in our lives. Like, if you have your Bible with you and you want something really great to, like, underline and, and circle and draw arrows to, uh, this would probably be it. This is a good section right here. To help us, the, the word, and nobody wants to talk about this word because it's not really a, a great word to say, but it rebukes us, is what God's word does. It challenges us, it convicts us. Literally the word that Paul uses here is it carries the idea of cutting up, cutting something or someone up like you would using a scalpel. If that sounds familiar about God's word and what God's word does to, to cut us and to challenge us and to shape us and to stretch us, it's because we find the very same thing in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when it tells us this. The word of God is alive. The word of God is powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes, exposes our innermost thoughts and desires to show us who we really are. Scripture shows us where we're wrong, and it, and it shows us what needs to be changed in our lives if we are to experience life and not death and, to, and decay. Makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. So Paul tells us the word teaches us, it rebukes us, or it, it cuts us up. The third thing he tells us about Scripture is that it corrects us. He says it here that it corrects us when we are wrong. The scriptures don't just leave us with the need to change. How, how cruel would that be to say, hey, guess what? You are a pile of filthy rags. I'm going home. Done. But it doesn't do that. It says you are a pile of filthy rags, but here's what you can do to clean yourself up. It corrects us. It, it, it points us in the way that we need to go and the ways that we need to walk, the things we need to see about God. God does not just tell us, don't do this, but he also says, walk this way. Come over here. See this. Do this. Again, in Hebrews, later on, the author will tell us, let me find myself here. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 9, he says this. Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children. It means that you are illegitimate. You're not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? Shouldn't we let God correct us? Shouldn't we let God in all his authority and all his might correct us when we are wrong? The final thing that Paul tells us here 
in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, is that it teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, and then also trains us. It trains us to live right, to live rightly, or as he says here, it trains us in righteousness. Now, now let me just step back for a minute. As you can tell, I am, I'm a workout buff, so I have all the authority in the world to tell you about this. But I don't need to be a workout buff to tell you there is a vast difference between working out and training. Like, I've been to the gym a few times, and I may have even been this guy to go to the gym, but there's a guy that comes in, and what's he do? He, like, lays down on the bench, and bicep curl, bicep curl, bicep curl, and just, like, just pushes it as hard as he can for, like, five minutes, and then, and then he's out, he's out, done. I've done my workout for the day. Guys, training is vastly different. Training is all about capturing the intricacies and the techniques of a sport or a movement, And then spending time perfecting those motions and those movements and those techniques until you're trained in a particular detail. That is what scripture does to us and for us. It addresses the nuances, the particulars, the details of our life and of faith until we're trained, until we become ever increasing in our righteousness to become more like Christ. Repetition done rightly trains you to react in certain ways with certain attitudes and emotions at the time that you need it the most, just like you do in training for a sport. And here's the thing. I don't want to leave out the last verse here in 2 Timothy 3. The result of all the training, the result of everything that Paul has just said in verse 16 is so that we become complete and mature. He says it this way in verse 17 again. God uses it. God uses his word, training us, cutting us up, correcting us, teaching us to prepare us and equip us to do every good work. That's why we read scripture. But here is the honest to goodness truth, guys. I can sit up here all morning long and I could go on next Sunday and talk about this and talk about loving God's word and that by loving God's word, we love him more because we come to know him better. However, here's what happens. I I could sit and tell you about that, but it doesn't do any good. In fact, it has a very limited impact. And I want you to think of it this way. If I stood up here this morning and I said to you, I love my wife, Crystal. And I had a list of like a hundred things. This is why I love Crystal. Because she loves our kids, because she loves me, because she loves God. And on and on I could go. And you could sit here and be like, that's really impressive. And that's awesome, Ryan. But do you know what would never happen? You would never fall in love with Crystal. Because you don't really know Crystal like I know Crystal. And the same thing happens standing up here and saying, you really need to love God and you need to love his word. Because me standing up here and telling you that is just telling you about God. It isn't going to make you fall in love with God. It isn't going to make you fall in love with his word. You have to fall in love with God and his word for yourself. And know him for yourself. You need to read his word and let that word and let the spirit chisel on you and stretch you and change you as you come face to face with the God who is so worthy of our love and affection. I love the way that the psalmist says it about God's word. Psalm 119. There are way too many psalms. Psalm 119, verse 97, he says this very simply. Oh, how I love your instructions. 
Oh, how I love your word. Oh, how I love the scriptures. I think about them all day long. Guys, when you get right down to it, scripture reading is not just important. Scripture reading is essential. It's essential if you're going to be in the habit of growing in God and honoring God. Without it, we are lost in a sea of good intentions at best, and we're lost in outright falsehood at worst. And here's what I want to say about habits and the habit of scripture reading. Guys, it's the small things in life. It's the small things that no one sees that will result and add up to the big things that everyone wants. Habits aren't flashy. Habits aren't the greatest thing in the world for us to want to do. But they're just steady decisions that we make day in and day out that add up to big and meaningful changes. But here's the thing. Habits do not happen automatically. Habits require discipline. Habits require seven to eight weeks, maybe longer, before they form. And here's what discipline is all about. Discipline is choosing between what you want now versus what you want most. And I have to believe, there may be somebody here who says, this is not me, but I have to believe that all of us in here want to grow in our relationship with God. We want to be more like Christ every single day of our lives. And so what we need to do is we need to say, we want to trade the things that we really want now, the needs and the wants and the desires that we want now for what we want most, to be mature and to be like Christ. And guys, what we want and what we need most is to be lovers of God's word and to be lovers of God. What does it mean to love God's word? It means that we cling to God's word and we will not let go. How many of you have ever given a gift to a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew? And you can tell if that child likes that toy because what do they do? Or they give, you give them a blankie or a toy, what do they do? They just hold that thing for ransom. They will not let it out of their sight. I think that's what it means to love and to cling to God's word, that we will just not let it go. But here's the thing, rather than hoarding it, rather than just keeping it for ransom, guys, we, we, we cherish God's word. We love God's word the most, ironically, when we're motivated to give it away and to share it because of the immense value it has in our life. Guys, we share those things that we cherish most in life. Here's a question I have. Do you want to know if you really cherish God's word? And here, here, here's the way you find that. Uh, are, you, are you sharing God's word? I mean, we share restaurant or product recommendations, but how often are we truly sharing the living, authoritative word of God? And that's the thing I don't want you to miss, and I want to end with this this morning. If you're still there in 2 Timothy, I want you to jump over to chapter 4 because he talks to Timothy a little bit more about cherishing God's word. He said, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead, and he appears to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. It's not just about preaching one guy up here. It's about all of us sharing the word. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming. Let me just put another word, phrase in there. The time is now. When people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and they will chase after myths. Guys, to people who desire or are in the habit of becoming more like Christ, we need to become people of the book. We need to become people who share the book. Will you pray with me?
Lord, that is the hope and the prayer that what has been said this morning, what you say to us so many times in your word is not something that we just look at and then pass by and walk away from, but that we look at it deeply. We get it deeply into us and that we are changed by it. And as we are changed by your word, Lord, we would use that word to share with others and we would change their lives as well. We would allow you to change their lives. I pray this morning that what we have heard, what you have spoken to us, the power of your word will settle deep into our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.